One, while a student at the Andover Theological Seminary in Andover, Massachusetts, at the request of his friend Lowell Mason. The song was first performed in public on July 4, 1832, at a Children's Independence Day celebration at the Park Street Congregational Church in Boston, Massachusetts. In 1939, when the Daughters of the American Revolution prohibited black singer Marian Anderson from performing in Constitutional Hall before an integrated audience, Eleanor Roosevelt got her to perform a concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Anderson began her concert with, My Country, Tis of Thee. And then 29 years later in 1963, 24 years later in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the same steps invoked the words of the song in his I Have a Dream speech. He said, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And he concluded his fiery impassioned visionary speech with these words. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. Tomorrow marks the 235th anniversary of the day Congress approved the wording of the Declaration of Independence, a document that continues to inspire many Americans today. Now, what can one say about the Declaration of Independence that hasn't already been said? And how can a mere minister who especially struggles with his own writing 
do justice to the power and poetry of the words in that document. Now I know that many people have a problem with the Declaration in its 18th century context, as they should. They consider it discriminatory and exclusionary to women, blacks, and minorities. And they're right. The high ideals expressed in the Declaration that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, were not actually put into practice when the Constitution was created and the United States came into existence. The word men was applied not in a general sense to include women, but rather literally to include only men, and that to wealthy white men. The Declaration did not apply to women or white men who did not own land or black people who were enslaved at that time or Native Americans who had survived the near genocide of European settlement. But the ideal remained. And over the last two centuries and more, we as a nation have struggled to bring that vision to fruition, to achieve that fundamental equality, one united nation of equals. And yet, we have not realized the full potential of this vision. At the same time, we need to recognize that some of these distortions were and have been rectified through the democratic process set up by the very same founders of our country. As Rabbi Michael Lerner rightly observed in a recent article, much of what we love about the United States of America was created by ordinary citizens who banded together to overcome the resistance to change from those in power. So this weekend, we need to pause to give thanks for all those ordinary and extraordinary Americans whose struggles brought about those changes. And we need to commit ourselves to continue the struggle to enlarge the circle to include all those who are being denied their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, especially gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people and immigrants. That said, how about New York? Yeah. My native country, the land of the noble free, thy name I love. I love thy rocks and rills, thy woods and templed hills, my heart with American history, as well as we might on the eve of July 4th, 
would we conclude that we live in the best of times or the worst of times, to paraphrase Charles Dickens? In my personal and humble estimation, we seem to be living close to the worst. While there have been other bad times in our history, Valley Forge, the spring of 1862 when countless American lives were lost from both North and South, the long years of depression in the 1930s, the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, that day of infamy, the disenfranchisement of women and the seemingly endless years of slavery which stretched both before and after the Emancipation Proclamation. But generally, but generally in bad times past, Americans seem to have retained some sense of who they were and where they were heading. But today, our sense of ourselves and our sense of direction seem to have gone awry. Now please forgive me for putting a damper on this beautiful, sultry holiday weekend. But if we truly love our country, if we are truly patriotic, I think we should be able to take the truth without anesthesia. So let's consider the following. We're told that the tide of economic recovery is rolling in, as evidenced by the Dow ending up 648 points for the week at 12,582.77. It's best week in two years, we're told. The Associated Press actually ran an article yesterday that manufacturing across the country had expanded, reinforcing the growing perception that the recent economic slowdown was temporary, end of quote. Right. But morally speaking, I believe the tide is still out. Nothing is visible but mud flats. You know, it used to be that unemployment was called the scandal of capitalism, and that too by capitalists. But few today seem appalled by the approximately 13 million men and women who continue to be unemployed and may never find work because multinational corporations and financial institutions continue to outsource manufacturing and technology jobs abroad and because neither companies with precious few exceptions nor the government feel in any way scandalized nor obligated to retrain workers of this land to the new and different technologies that will shape our future. And there seems to be a marked reluctance to focus on the ethical and moral issues surrounding the current economic system. In fact, I have at times wondered if the family structure in America today exists to serve the economic system instead of the other way around. Nobel Prize-winning Indian economist and social thinker, thinker Amartya Sen views freedom as the primary end and the principal means of development. Development, he says, requires the removal of major sources of unfreedom, poverty as well as tyranny, poor economic opportunities as well as systematic social deprivation, 
neglect of public facilities, as well as intolerance or overactivity of repressive states, end of quote. Sen contends that when segments of the community are excluded from the benefits of a market-oriented society, then that society, or even that nation, really is not free. See, our economic system encourages selfishness, me-first-ism, and indifference to the ecological and ethical impacts of our activities. Acting counter to those attitudes feels not only unfamiliar, but also risky. Yet underneath all that, many of us yearn for a different kind of world, But at the same time, we think it is unrealistic, impractical, to struggle for what we really believe in, since we are convinced that nobody else shares that desire. But if we want and need a different kind of world, we have to engage in nonviolent struggles to build it. And that has always been the way we have won the battles for precisely the things that make us proud of the victories of the American people. Because you see, it was always people who were told that what they wanted was unrealistic or impractical and who essentially bucked the norm to become the real heroes of the American story. Of course... The powerful often obscure that history and try to convince us that all the human rights and liberties and freedoms were somehow given to us. But actually, it was precisely the little people, people like you and me and us, who made the big changes that have made this country worthy of celebration. Let music swell the breeze and ring from all the trees sweet freedom song. Let mortal tongues awake. Let all Let rocks their silence break The sound prolong This is the great paradox of freedom And it applies to each person As well as nations or to congregations To have freedom, you have to have responsibility. To have freedom, you have to have accountability. Because, you see, freedom is not license. To have freedom, you have to have a sense of awareness and know that the powers in you and freedom cannot be taken for granted. Naomi Wolf is a journalist and author of The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. She writes, 
We take our American liberty for granted the way we take our natural resources for granted, seeing both rather casually as being magically self-replenishing. We have not noticed how vulnerable either resource is until very late in the game when systems start to falter. We have been slow to learn that liberty, like nature, demands a relationship with us in order for it to continue to sustain us. Most of us only have a faint understanding of how societies open up or close down, becoming supportive of freedom or ruled by fear. One reason for our vagueness about how liberty lives or dies is that we have tended lately to subcontract out the tasks of the patriot, to let the professionals, lawyers, scholars, activists, politicians, worry about understanding the Constitution and protecting our rights the way we hire a professional to do our taxes. They can keep democracy up and running because we are busy, end of quote. So this weekend we need to ask ourselves, what kind of relationship do we want our children to have with liberty? Is it the kind of relationship that is taught to them in schools when they are required to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing the national anthem every morning? Or is it some other kind of liberty? What kind of relationship do we intend to have it have with liberty ourselves. We need to ask who belongs here, who doesn't, who says so, and why. Why are we so afraid of people who are different from us? And how do we get ourselves to be free from fear? You see, the immigration issue is about economics, as it has always been. And it's about security, as it has always been. But at its core, it is also about fear and racism and power and manipulation. It appeals to the base instincts that are deep within us. Not only that primal fear of the other, but also an even more irrational fear of change and loss and fear of control loss of the known world, America the beautiful. We had a powerful panel discussion on Thursday when I was joined by folks from not only around the county but also from Washington, D.C., who not only shared some wonderful points about what ails the current immigration system and why it needs to be reformed to create a more humane and human immigration laws. But also, I was struck by the things that the people said who were in attendance. We had, I think, over 60 people here. And the things that they emphasized was the need for us to find a more balanced way, not only to talk about these issues, but to find more reasonable, practical solutions. But do I have confidence that Congress would do something about it? No. Do I have confidence that the White House would do something about it, that too, gearing up for an election year? Hell no. But we try. 
Because you see, we Unitarian Universalists come from a long line of heretics who have professed many beliefs about all kinds of things, both sacred and profane. The freedom to speak, whatever the speech. The freedom to believe, whatever the belief. The freedom to love, whatever the gender, is the heart of the matter to us. In centuries past, Unitarians and Universalists were burned at the stake, they were tortured in dungeons, their books were burned, their churches destroyed, their livelihoods ruined for holding to their truths, for refusing to recant, refusing to comply with governments or bishops or mobs. And in defense of the free mind, heart, spirit, soul, community, They died in Geneva, in Krakow, in London, in Dachau, and Selma. We come from a long line of dissenters and dissidents who died for this faith and from others who survived. What matters now to us, the descendants and inheritors of such a noble legacy, I wonder? And how far are we prepared to go? How much are we willing to sacrifice. Because whatever we variously believe, we are disbelievers in anything but the basic humanity of everyone, the freedom and beauty of everyone, the dignity and worth of everyone, the belonging of everyone. So the 4th of July is about a vision a noble vision of a nation built on freedom and equality and justice. That vision coincides with the vision of our Unitarian Universalist faith, which affirms and promotes the inherent worth and dignity of everyone and affirms and promotes the importance of interdependence, of sharing the resources that have been entrusted to us. So the best way, in my opinion, my friends, to celebrate the 4th of July is not to hide behind the curtains of nostalgia, letting that manifest itself in fireworks, parades, and backyard barbecues, but instead to look at how far we have strayed from that founding vision as a nation, and then to reflect and to take some action on what we can do to reclaim that vision. Our fathers, God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing long
As the ushers join me down here to give and receive the offering that sustains the work and ministry of our religious community, a work of caring, a work of sharing, a work of prophecy, a work of justice, a work of ministry, I invite you to ponder, ponder the deep